Let's then turn in our Bibles to the letter to the Hebrews. We're in chapter 9 today. We're going to be reading from verse 1 to 14. Okay, let me read it to you. Now the first covenant also had regulations for ministry and an earthly sanctuary. For a tabernacle was set up and in the first room, which is called the holy place, where the lampstand, the table and the representation loaves behind the second curtain was a tent called the holy place. It had the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered with gold on all sides, in which was a gold jar containing the manna, iron staff that budded, and the tables of the covenant. The cherubim of the glory were above the Ark, overshadowing the mercy seat. It is not possible to speak about these things in detail now. With these things prepared like this, the priests entered the first room repeatedly, performing their ministry. But the high priest alone entered the second room. And he does that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins of the people that that the people had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was making it clear that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed while the first tabernacle was still standing. This is a symbol for the present time during which gifts and sacrifices are offered and cannot perfect the worshipper's conscience. They are physical regulations and only deal with food and drink and various washings imposed until the time of the new order. But Christ has appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come. In the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered the most holy place once once for all time, not by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a young cow sprinkling those who are defiled sanctifies for, sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, through whom the Holy Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse our consciences from dead works so that we can serve the living God. Amen. Yeah, when I was trying to prepare this, I was this week, and I was trying to break it down. I was like, "Well, I'm going to break down verses one to nine. and then I realized that the speaker is just uh, giving us a narrative portion of scripture. He's just opening it up and, and revealing to, to us and to those whom he was writing to the old ministry or the, the the Old Testament ministry. He's painting a picture for them of how things used to be. You see in Jesus' day, the temple of Herod, the temple that was supposedly still standing at this time, was a new temple. I mean, it had only actually been finished, more or less, in the time of Jesus. And it was a reconstruction. We know that there had been 
several temples showed tabernacles. There was the, the tabernacle that Moses had constructed, the tents. Remember, they would go around and they would construct their tents and they put a, a tent wall around it or a cloth wall around it and everything. Then after that came Solomon's temple. And Solomon's temple was great and splendid and magnificent and wonderful. And then that temple was destroyed. It was leveled to the ground. And then afterwards there was the rebuilding of the temple through Ezra and Nehemiah. They built the, the second temple and it wasn't as glorious or fantastic. Indeed, those who saw it and remembered the Solomon's temple, they wept because they said that the, the glory of the former outshines the glory of the, of the new. And then time went on and the second temple became shoddy and neglected and there's even saying that it was it was uh, renovated throughout that time that fell apart and then they renovated again so, so, so. but came Herod and Herod then did a, a great renovation project and he constructed and outwardly it was awesome and fantastic it was splendid I think we've looked at so we've talked about in the past some of the the splendor there was a giant I don't want to call it a statue but like a modern art representation of Israel on the front of the temple it was a giant wine or not wine um, grape vine you know the a vine of grapes you go to, to Lidl or to, to Prisma wherever you do your shopping and you buy grapes from that little box and you take them out and there they are the, it's the wine the, the wine I keep saying wine it's the grapes that are on the vine. That's what I meant to say. Well, supposedly in the Herod's temple, they had a giant statue of these grapes over the entrance of the temple. Each grape was as tall as a man and was polished to a, a, a shining gold. So that when the sun was, it was going down in the evenings, it would shine upon this and it would light up the valley. And it was very spectacular, wonderful. And it was like, oh. And everybody was amazed and delighted at Herod's temple. Remember the disciples at the Olivet, just at the beginning of the Olivet discourse when Jesus is discussing it. And his disciples and him are walking through the, the temple courts, the gates. They're going down out of the city. And the, the disciples are looking up and going, this place is amazing. And the disciples are just in awe of the splendor of this new temple. And yet then Jesus, being the open-wondering, you know, the encouraging man that he is, says, see all this? Not even one stone's going to be left on top of it. It's going to be torn down and thrown out and smashed into dust. And they're all like, whoa! Nobody says anything until they get to the Garden of Olives. And then they say, Lord, when, when, when will these things happen, Lord? And they ask him, and that begins that great discourse about the end times and the destruction of Jerusalem and that age which is to come. You see, the temple that they were worshipping in, the temple that they were afraid of being put out of, remember the Christians now were being excluded from temple worship. They were being treated like Gentiles. They were being treated like, like people who had fallen away from Judaism had embraced some sort of cult, some sort of sect that had blasphemed and as a punishment they were being excluded. Or by just in their own conscience because they could no longer participate in the ongoing sacrifices for sins, 
that they couldn't go to the temple. They wouldn't go to the temple. And it was troubling them and it was troubling the people around them, which then was troubling them. And the writer here is pointing out to them that even the temple that you're so worried about, the temple that you're in a state of discomfort about, isn't even the real temple. It doesn't even have the real articles of worship within it. And here the writer is pointing back to the beginning, reminding his hearers, readers, about the elements of true worship that God had given them that were absent from the new temple. Here he talks about, for a tabernacle was set up in the first room, that, which is called the holy place, and there was a lampstand, the table, and the presentation loaves. In the new temple, there were represent, you know, like a reconstructions of those things, but they were not the true ones. They were not the ones that had been prescribed by God. And then it goes on. And then behind the second curtain, there was a tent called the most holy place. The holy of holies. That most sacred place of all and of all of Israel. Remember that it was held behind this giant curtain. Like we have long curtains here. It cost a fortune, apparently. These long materials. But the ones that were in the temple, it was as thick as a man's hand. Can you imagine a curtain that was as thick as a man's hand? It was as tall as three stories. You ever seen a three-story building? You... It was massive. It was heavy. It was held up by giant metal rings up on the... It was basically a wall. A wall of material, of felt. We know that when Jesus was crucified and as he died, there was an earthquake and that, that sanctuary wall was torn in half. It split from the top to the bottom. Could you imagine trying to repair that, you know, with a needle and thread? The amount of effort and time it would take. And not being able to do it. But behind that curtain, in the new temple, there was nothing. There was an empty space. Because when Solomon's temple was destroyed, the articles within that Holy of Holies were taken away. And they were never returned. They were gone. And temple worship really honestly ended there. Not in Jesus' day. Not in the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. One might say it ended at the destruction of the temple in Solomon's day. And everything else after that was just a remembrance. It was a pointing back. He's reminding them of the emptiness the futility of their outward worship, of just doing the, the same things, of being slaves to ritual and ceremony. That it had to be more than something of the outward, it had to be something of the inward. And, and I, I really like the fact that he's reminding of that, he's reminding them of the glory, and in doing so, reminding of the absence of reality within the new temple that what you think is important isn't even really the real thing. Don't be fooled by the propaganda, by the false news, whatever it's called, those things. And he goes on in verse 6. 
With these things prepared like this, the priest entered into the first room and repeatedly performed their ministry. And he's talking again about the roles of the priest and how it had to be a special priest at a special time. The high priest who was able to go in and do these things. And he wasn't able to do it. He wasn't able to go in to that special place except without blood never without blood which he offers for himself and the sins of the people he, he had com- the people had committed in ignorance which is a very important thing verse 8 it says the holy spirit was making it clear that the way into the holy place had not yet been disclosed while this first tabernacle was still standing the holy spirit reminding everybody that these things were just Images, they were lessons in that which was to come. You look at it and you were supposed to then be able to recognize the reality that was to come later on. They were visible representations of what God was going to do. Things that we had made in order to demonstrate that which God would do on our behalf. They were not the finished reality. They were simply like a a prophecy of things that were to come. They were not the, the end. They were the means to the end. You're not supposed to take comfort. They're not supposed to bring peace to your conscience. They are the things that are to be able to point you to Jesus to the sacrifice, to the high priest, to the one that was to come, had come, and is come. In verse 9, this is a symbol for the present time during which gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the worshiper's conscience. That is such a charge against outward religion, against coming to church against any kind of system that demands of you obedience on the outward. By doing this, I will be made better. By doing this, I am right. By doing this, I'm accepted. None of those outward things can make you right with God. All of our good deeds, the Bible says, are but like filthy rags, like dirty toilet paper. All of the best things that you've ever done. Like an old dirty rag. Something that's stinking and smelling. You ever had one of those wash rags we have in ours where you wash dishes with and you leave it sitting out too long and, and then you're like, I normally don't notice until I'm wiping the table with it. And I'm like, what is that smell? And it is the stinking dish rag. You have to like get a clean one and disinfect the table. The Bible says all of our best deeds, all of our best intentions, all of our best efforts to make peace with God are like a stinking dirty rag. Filthy and repulsive. Nothing that the old system, nothing in the old covenant could make a man right with God, could make a man sanctified within his own heart. It would take something more. And the Bible tells us that the old system, with all its regulations, with all its different degrees of the law, it was only a symbol. 
It was only a sign pointing to the reality that is to come. It was one that was created to demonstrate the seriousness of sin. Imagine that on sacrifice day, say the day of atonement, which really he's, he's pointing to, when flocks of animals, not just one or two, but we're talking hundreds, tens of thousands perhaps of animals were sacrificed. And the blood ran so thick and deep that there were special drains in the city. The Kilron, what was it called? The, the Kilron Valley. Where there's a drain up high on, the, on the, the walls. So when the blood was forming, there would be like a waterfall of blood into the valley. And the river would run red. There would be a river of blood that would run down out into the, the larger river, then into the sea, wherever it went. This is the river that Jesus, on his last night on earth, before he was crucified, and he was going up into the, 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 the garden, he had to cross this river as it ran red with blood, a reminder of him of what it would take for him, of what was in store for him to purchase that redemption. He saw this river of blood, Again, we're not talking a trickle. We're talking a river of blood because of the sacrifice, the stench of it. All of this was to demonstrate the seriousness of our sin and the extent it would take to cleanse us from our sin. A life for a life. It's not enough simply to go and try and buy your way into heaven. It's not enough to try and purchase peace with God through your best intentions or the life of some other creature. Something that costs you, some sort of sacrifice. That's not enough. The Bible says it's a life for a life. The soul that sins shall die. He says that here in verse 10 that these things were imposed until the new order had come. That new time. And thank God we're in that new order. That new world order. In that new testament time. It says here in verse 11. But Christ has appeared as high priest. Or the high priest, or a high priest. It should say the high priest, or as high priest of the good things that have come. We we are we are a free church. We don't have bishops. We don't have cardinals. We don't have popes or kings that rule over us and decide like other churches do. We didn't have a synod. You know, like a, a collection of righteous men who then decide everything that happens. We believe that Jesus Christ is our king and he is our high priest. And, and for us in our day, because we've become so secularized, we've become so atheistic almost in our practice, that the idea of having some religious guru, can you say that? Is Jesus your guru? 
some sort of your religious head, the highest authority, the one who decides, the one who leads and guides you, not by suggestion, but by command. That idea is foreign to us in reality. I decide my life. Or, I like to think I do, but really, you know, we all know who decides my life. I'm the one in control of my destiny. We've been brought up to think that no one can tell me what to do. To have opinions in any other way is, is like, ooh, ooh, that's culty and crazy and old world. And no, 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 no. But yet as Christians, we recognize that the Bible teaches that Jesus Christ is our high priest. That's not a figurative title. You know, we call him the Lamb of God. Now, he's not really a lamb. You know, he's not. We call him the Lion of Judah. He, he's not really a lion, you know. It's a nice title. It's a, it's a description. It's, it's of his nature. It's of his power, of his purpose. But he's not a lion, nor is he a lamb. We call him the Root of Jesse. He's not a tree, you know. He's called the Seed. He's not a seed. He's called the high priest. He is the high priest of our faith. Just as he is our king. He's called the king of kings. That's just not like a, you know, a nickname. That's who he is. And believer, Jesus Christ is the high priest. He is the only one who is able to go before us. The only one who is able to represent us. He is the one who has made access into heaven for us. He is your representative. He is the one who speaks on your behalf. He is the one who maintains the open passage to God for you. It is because of him you have free and easy access into the throne room of heaven. He is your high priest. We need to get back to biblical Christianity, don't we? You need to step back out of the worldliness and the culture that we've grown up in that draws us away from biblical thinking and pulls us into this individualistic culture. Me, my, and I. Oh, I remember when we started the church and we were discussing about worship music and I remember that we decided anything that says me, my, and I, Jesus is my girlfriend and I am this. We thought, yeah, they were getting rid of that. Not having those me, my, and I songs. Because they're an expression of the culture, the time, the epoch in which we live. The me, my, and I where it's all about me. And sadly, when we come to think about our salvation, when we come to think of our representation before heaven, it's me, my, me, my, and I. I give my life to Jesus. I entered into the sanctuary, the holy of holies. And somehow, in some way, we kind of like put Jesus out, but you know, Jesus got nothing to do with it. It's me. He opened the door, but I went through. It's me. I represent myself in heaven. Me. I'm the one who intercedes. But the Bible is so refreshingly clear. 
Christ has appeared as a high priest or the high priest, as high priest of good things, of the good things that have come. He is your high priest. He is the one who represents you. He is the one who has offered up the sacrifice, the blood. In the day of atonement, the, the high priest have to had, had to have a golden basin. We would say a bucket of blood. No, a bucket of blood. And he'd have a, a, a bunch of hyssop. It's like one of those things you beat yourself with when you're in the, or somebody else beats you when you're in the, in the sauna. What do you call those? A crisp grey thing, you know what I mean? Those bastos, tree beating things, you know what I'm talking about. And you would take one of them, and the high priest would have one that's full of hyssop, and he would dip the blood in it, and he would splash it all over, like as you, as you do in the basto. You go in the basto, before you heat it up, you make it all wet. See, next time you do that, you're soaking the basto, the sauna, before, before you think this is what Jesus did. Shed his blood. And the idea there is to demonstrate how severe it was. You can imagine painting. Splash, 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 splash. The extent of the need of sacrifice on your behalf. And this is what Jesus did for us. This is who he is. He wasn't high priest for a while for that one moment. And then stop being it. He is our high priest. And I really wish you could get a hold of it. I really wish I could demonstrate to you in your minds the importance of this. That you're not alone. And you're not individually responsible for yourself. You have one who cares for you. One who has taken the responsibility of your well-being of your care to themselves. Jesus has taken you on and he is representing you, carrying you. He will not stop. He cannot stop. You are his. He is our high priest. That, for these believers, would have been shocking. That would have been a wake-up call. This is the new covenant ministry that Jesus who is our high priest is continually and is constantly interceding for us he is the constant reminder of the sacrifice that has been paid we are his burden we are his responsibility and for as long as he stands or sits for as long as he is in that heavenly place. And in good relationship with the Father. We are secure and safe. We need no outward. Earthly manifestation of the kingdom. Because the sanctuary in which he has entered. Is one not built by human hands. It's there before God. It's in heaven. Wherever God is. Says here, in greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made by with, by human hands, that is, of not of this creation, he entered into the most holy place one time and for all, not by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. 
One day you will die. It's a terrible thought to think, but it's, it's a reality. The Bible says that it is appointed unto all men to die, and then after comes judgment. There's a reality in that. When you're young, you think you're eternal, immortal, can do whatever you want, and have no understanding of the consequences, how fragile life is. But one day you will die. And the Bible says after you die, you will stand before God in judgment. That your life will be weighed out. That you will be, again, judged as to the righteousness, as to the, the faithfulness. Have you kept the commandment? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Sadly, all of us will fail that. There's not one of us. The Bible says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's not one of us who have ever kept the commandment, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Never one moment in one day have we ever been able to fulfill that. And as... Our life is being examined. Every thought, word, feeling, every secret that we have ever done, every sin we've ever committed, every righteous deed stinking in its vileness brought forth before all humanity. Because the Bible says when mankind is judged, every man, woman and child from beginning of creation until the end of creation will be gathered there in audience, so that your judgment shall be before all of mankind, your mom, your dad, your brother, your sister, everyone, and witnesses will be called forth and everything else, and it'll be done righteously and correctly, and then the judgment will be passed. It can only be one judgment guilty, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Guilty. Yet in that instant, just as the hammer of the judge is to fall and to say, guilty. There will be one who will stand up and say, hold on. It is for this one I died. Hold on. I shed my blood that this one may not have to endure the horrors of hell in eternity without Christ. Of separation, of utter darkness, where the worm continually devours and the fires never end. It is there in that moment when the high priest steps forward and exercises his authority, gives himself in our defense, and pardon is declared. And those who have received Jesus Christ as their Lord or their sacrifice, as their hope, they shall enter into eternal life. Not because they deserve it, not because they have won it, but because in God's grace he has deposited upon them. They have received, they have repented and confessed and turned away and believed and accepted and followed him. 
beloved. Jesus gave his life one time and for all. That means that there is no other method or means. There's no other way that we can have peace with God, that we can experience the life that is to come. But it's not just about, and you all know that I love this saying, it's not just about the pie in the sky when you die. It's not about just life after death. It's in the old saying again, stick on your plate while you wait. It's about the, the fullness of life in this life. See, the pleasures of sin are for but an instant. You can enjoy living life up and doing wild and crazy stuff here and now, but there always is a bill to pay. There's always a cost. There's always a circumstance, a seriousness. You don't get away with stuff in life. We who are, we who are young, I said that, we who are young, Believe sometimes that we can just do stuff and there be no consequences. But there's always a consequence. In Ireland, we used to say, when you go to dinner with the devil, you always end up paying the bill. There's always a consequence to your sin in this life and in the next. Adultery. When you... Cheat on your partner. There's a consequence to that sin. Whether it's in your mind, in your heart, whether in real life. There's always a consequence. Lying. You may get away with lying. You may be such a good liar. I'm a terrible liar. You may be such a good liar that you can con everybody and get away with it. Think of that young man, or young man, that man that I spoke with at the beginning of this week who... Uh, was able to con hotels out of... He stayed in a hotel for 30 days and didn't have to pay the bill. So good was he at lying. He ran up debts of, at a minimum, two and a half million euros. He was so good at lying that he was able to get away with it. But it ended in him trying to commit suicide. It ended in him being hunted by one of the most fearsome mafia groups in the north, there's a consequence to lying. There's a consequence to sinning. You might think it's just a little thing and it has no consequence, but little things add up. Every river began with one drop of water. Every storm with one droplet of rain. Jesus Christ died one time for all, meaning that there is no other way, no Way of receiving the new life that comes from God or protection from this world. Beloved, Jesus Christ is our high priest. It's in him our faith, our trust, our hope is found. He is the fulfillment of all of the images of the Old Testament. Somebody once asked me, why don't we, if we're Bible-believing Christians, why don't we practice Christianity as they did in the Old Testament? Why don't we have the cool beards and the big hats and the big robes? Why are we not Jews in that sense? Because we understand and know that the Bible teaches that the old has passed away. Jesus completed it and set us free from it. 
and brought it in and established the new covenant of which he is the high priest, of which he is the sacrifice for our sins. The Bible tells us that he brought in, obtained eternal redemption. Not the potential for it. He didn't kind of half make it or 80% and then you have to make up the 20% or that it's continually being depleted. That he gave you 100% but every time you sin you kind of take away 1% or 2% or 10%. And then you have to make it up by your good deeds. No, one time and for all Jesus purchased redemption. Eternal life means life that leads lasts into eternity and beyond. Forgiveness of sins. Not just of that which you have done, but of the, the nature in which you have inherited your sins and the sins of your fathers and your forefathers and the fathers and blah, 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 blah. All the way back to Adam. The Bible says here again in verse 13, For if the blood of goats and bulls and ashes of young cows, sprinkling those who were defiled, sanctified for the purification of flesh, the idea there is if this outward, the killing of these animals, was able to give the high priest access into the earthly circumstances and it was only an outward thing if, if this outward sacrifice was able to grant them entrance into the earthly into the man-made how much more and he asked this question in verse 14 how much more will the blood of christ through the eternal spirit who all through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to god cleanse our consciences from dead works so that we can serve the living god you know, you can ask God for forgive you to forgive you for a hundred years and it's never going to happen. You can promise to be better and do better. It's never going to happen. You can, your best efforts will never be good enough. Never. Because you and I are, are defunctional. Our default Position is always self-destruction. The sin within us always flees and seeks to hide from God. There is only one way that we can approach God. There is only one method that is acceptable. And that is in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. He and He alone can represent us. It's through His blood his blood, your blood and my blood, our lives. The Bible says that the life of a creature is in its blood. We all understand that, don't we? If I was to cut your throat and all your blood would run out, you'd be dead. Understand that? Why? Because all your blood would be out of you and all the life would drain out of you. The Bible says that the life of a creature is in his blood. Jesus gave his life for you and for me. Jesus gave his life in order to purchase life for you he gave his life for you that you might receive his life he the blameless one the perfect one the one who never did anything wrong in word thought and deed 
from infancy to his, the day of his death, he lived a perfect life. Perfect life. It's impossible for you and I to understand what that looks like. It's impossible. We, well, how to get her? But he was blemish free. He had never done anything wrong. My goodness. I, wow. And that life that was sin free, that life that was blemishless, was given on behalf of you and me. On behalf of those who would believe. <clears throat> that not, not only that we would be outwardly clean. Acceptable. Acceptable looking. Some of us are more acceptable looking than others. But that inwardly there would be a transformation. That inwardly our hearts would be moved. That we would be born again, we would be transformed, that God would have His way within us. And that our consciences, not just the feelings of guilt, but our innermost being, our will would be cleansed from sin. That we would be changed. Now there are some of us who have guilty consciences because of the sins that we have committed. I think of my past life. Think of the things that I have done, not just before I came to Christ, but even in, those, in the 30-something years that I've been a believer. And I think of those things that I've done that I, I regret, sinful actions that I may have committed in ignorance or even in willfulness. And my conscience eats at me. It'll say, oh, you shouldn't have done that. And I know. But yet, I'm able to turn and say to Christ, you are my sacrifice. And all of my sin has been paid for. Past, present and future. And it is forgotten. And God sees it no more. Thank you Lord. Beloved. Jesus Christ is the only way. The truth and the life. And in the new covenant. Uh, our hope is found in him. He is our representative in heaven. He is the great Giver of life. He has purchased redemption for us. It is an eternal redemption. It never ends. And it's in Him and Him alone. The writer, or the Holy Spirit through the writer to the Hebrews, down through the ages to us today, is commenting on the, the free nature of the new covenant. Though we may not have a, a temple... No, a cathedral somewhere that we have to go to once every other year or whatever it was. Though we may not have a, a system of religion, you know, like where the pastor walks down, the priest walks down in the middle with a big cleanser and might do all those kind of efforts. Where we don't walk around with holy water in a rattle splashing one another. We may not have the outward symbols. Don't have the fancy beards or the big golden robes. We are set free from those circumstances, from those symbols. We don't have that system of regeneration where we, we baptize our babies or circumcise our boys. I'm glad you're glad for that. We are set free from all of those earthly regulations. But in the same sense, we, we are 
now under the control of a heavenly regulations. Jesus Christ is our high priest and therefore we must come to him in worship. As you were singing today, was Christ in your mind? As you are gathering here today, are you coming here because it's required of you? Because it's expected of you? Because you feel that you have to? Or are you coming here to worship Jesus? You're coming here to demonstrate to all the world that you believe in him? That you bring your, yourself and your household here? In order that they might experience the love of God through each other and through his word by the Holy Spirit. We have been set free from the outward things. We have been set free from the tradition, the ceremony, the rituals. But still there is the requirement that it is real. It must be really real now. We must come in worship. The Bible says we are those who worship in spirit and in truth. It must come from the heart. Now, if you're like me, sometimes you want the God to kind of force it from your heart. You know, like exploding like, like one of those aliens from the film Alien. All your worship coming out of your chest. But we must walk in his ways and keep his requirements. We must be the ones who bring our sacrifice and praise. God's not going to bend your arm behind your back and say, Worship me, worship me. He's not going to stand there at the back with a big stick like Frederick does. You know, big stick going, oh, I see you. Worship. As you reflect upon what Christ has done, what Christ is doing, what Christ is continually and will do for you. When you consider your own situation, how far you were from him, how dark your mind was, and yet his grace, his mercy, his goodness has brought you into this light, it should elicit feelings of worship. You're weak and pitiful and, and, and have no strength. Hallelujah, praise God for that. For the Bible says God delights in the humble but opposes the pride. He's not looking for you to be strong and mighty because he knows you're not. In your weakness, worship him. In your frailness, declare him. Understand, beloved, that if you reject him, he will reject you. The Bible says that very clear. You reject him, he will reject you. But Everyone who comes to him will never be turned away. The Bible says that if you draw close to him, he will draw close to you. The Bible says that you should take his yoke, his burden upon you, because it's easy to carry. Beloved, he is our high priest, and in him and him alone is salvation found. His peace is Salvation, not just for the life that is to come, but salvation for this life here and now. Remember the old Irish revivalist saying, it's not pie in the sky when you die. It's steak on your plate while you wait. It's real life now. So that in the hardness, the, the toughness and the reality of this life, you can find peace in the midst of the storm. 
You can find renewal when you're weak and heavy laden, tired, want to give up. Christ is there. This is the new covenant ministry. It's in a reality, not just the outward paraphernalia, but it's the, the inward eternal redemption made manifest. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us. Lord, so often we are distracted by the outward. Lord, so often we look and um, let, lean our weight upon the external things. Lord, we need external things to carry us. We, we want you to come along behind us and twist our arm. We want you to be the bully God who pushes and pulls and drags us kicking and screaming. Forgive us, Lord. So often we are overcome by the culture in which we live. Lord, that has conditioned us into thinking of ourselves as individuals, has conditioned us to think of ourselves in an atheistic manner and fashion. The Lord, that has separated us from our history and from the knowledge of you. Lord, so often we are slow and sluggish in the reading of the word, of the understanding of the word, of the accepting of the word. So rarely do we accept you, Lord, as the high priest of our faith. We think of you as a friend, a distant cousin, a a relative who lives on the other side. Sometimes, Lord, even we think of you as Santa Claus, uh, a mythical figure who is not real. Lord, please demonstrate your reality. Lord, as you have saved us, as you have changed our thinking and our behaviors, as you've transformed our hearts from the past, Lord, to what we are today, we pray, O oh God, that you would help us in the, the difficulties of this life, Lord, in the trials of this life, Lord, that you would be glorified and that you would be exalted. Help us, O oh God, not to think as the world thinks, not to try and live in the, the form and the fashion of this world, but, Lord, to live according to your patterns, to walk in your decrees, to keep your statutes. My God, I pray for those who do not know you, Do not know the peace, Lord, that comes from the knowledge of you. The Lord that keeps them, keeps us in the the difficulties and the hardships of life. The Lord protects us from the sinfulness of this life, from the consequences of sin. Please, Lord, we pray for them that you'd open up their hearts and their minds. That, Lord, you would help them and draw them into the reality of yourself. That, Lord, they might know the protection of Christ, our high priest. Father, we do pray these things for your glory and your glory alone. In Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen.